0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. Uh, Today is Saturday, April 10th, 2021 starting at 1247 PM in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 299th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Alice Sparklycat about their new book titled Postcolonial Astrology. Uh, So hey, Alice, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, nice to um, be here. Thanks for having me. I didn't know it was almost 300 episodes. That's amazing.
0: 299s, and so the next one will be episode 300. So somehow it's been
1: wow, yeah, it's, a, it's a lot. Cool,
0: yeah. So thank you for joining me. Um, you've listened to the you've been a listener of the podcast before, and yeah. um, I- you have a new book coming out next month. And this is going to be, I know you've published other books before, you've self published other books, mm-hmm. but this is your first book with like a major publisher, right?
1: Yeah, it is. It's coming out May 18th.
0: Cool. All right. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, maybe first, uh, since it's your first time on the show, just introducing you to my my audience. Could you tell me a little bit about your background uh, in astrology, especially?
1: Yeah, my name is Ace. I go by Ace or Alice Sparkly Cat. Um, yeah, my background in astrology. I got into it like around 2014, and. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really on the internet so much with it until like, you know, the last couple of years. But just kind of like started doing readings for friends. Um like I it really helped me during like a harder time in my life. So like yeah, the way that I learned about it was just kind of about caring for each other.
0: Okay, brilliant. And I really like your um, some of your articles. You you wrote an article talking about the concept of detriment last year and reinterpreting it in the context of like modern times. And I thought that was a really well-written article and really admired um, what you were doing with it and the way that you were taking some of the ancient or the traditional concepts but also updating them and putting them in a more appropriate sort of modern context in, in a way. Um, so I know a lot of younger people just know you as like a really brilliant writer. And um, in this, you tackled like a pretty large topic of applying postcolonial theory to astrology. So I thought maybe we could start there in terms of introducing that topic because this is something that was somewhat new to me and that's why I was interested in, in reading your book and interviewing you about it because I didn't have much background in post postcolonial thought. Um, so maybe we could start there by defining what postcolonial theory is and how it got started.
1: Sure, yeah, that sounds great. Um, postcolonial theory um is kind of convoluted because the name of it, post colonial, after colonialism, suggests like almost like colonialism is over when we know that it's not. So with a lot of the writers who are working within postcolonial theory, sometimes what's happening is like, well, um, yeah, like they're living in places where the like the government um it's been like kind of like been more localized now where it's not like like you know for example Hong Kong it's not a British colony anymore but then it's still financially dependent on empire so post-colonial theory all it is is it's academic text sometimes poetry um like whatever it is it's kind of trying to create this space that imagines a future after colonialism.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the thinkers that you cited several times, and I wasn't familiar with his work prior to this, I'd seen him mentioned in some of your articles online, and then um, a bunch of times in your book was a mid-20th century um, writer named Franz Fanon, and it seemed like he was one of the founders of post-colonial theory, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was a I think he was a doctor. Um uh, but then what happened was be, he became a revolutionary. He became um a part of the revolution in Algiers.
0: Okay. So he was he lived um I think he was born in Martinique, um which was like a former uh, colonial like colony um mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, right?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Okay. So he his first book I think he out he was pretty young. He was like twenty-seven years old when he wrote his first book. Um, and that seemed to contain like a lot of his like foundational um principles. And that was titled uh, black skin white masks, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He has that book, he has Wretched of the Earth. Um, they kind of go together because black skin white masks, um, like it's about his experience of race. And then Wretched of the Earth is about uh, movement. It's about activism.
0: Okay, um, so maybe we could talk about like for somebody that doesn't have the background, like why that is important. And for him, it was a much more, it seemed like a much more visceral thing because he was still experiencing the the immediate effects and after effects of, of colonialism. Um, and why that was important. And and he seemed to be, since he was a psychiatrist, very much focused on the psychological impact that that had and the lingering psychological impact on the cultures and societies and peoples that were affected by by colonialism. And that's why this was an important concept to him because even if the, the rule of some of these colonial powers had ended, the after effects of some of those things was still lingering in a very pervasive way in society, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's an ongoing occupation. That's what colonial um, colonialism is. So yeah, it's still ongoing. Um, so I think that's why a lot of people really love his work is because we see ourselves in his writing. Um, yeah, and that, I mean, that first book he wrote, it's like, it's so much from his personal experience. So there's just moments where like, you really feel it in your heart um in the second book, Retro of the Earth, like that's important too, because he wasn't just a theorist. He was an activist. He was really involved in struggling.
0: Right. So it wasn't just like descriptive in terms of the negative effect that colonialism had on colonized peoples, but also it was like prescriptive in terms of what should be done about that and how people should attempt to to break free of that in different ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm
0: one of the quotes that I found, um, I think it was actually from a YouTube video where I was watching different channels on post-colonialism, but one of the things that said about Fanon's work is it said that, um, quote, existentialism argues that individuals develop by exercising their free will, seen in this like colonialism which stifles the free will of the colonized, is shown to be inherently dehumanizing. And it seems like that focus of the dehumanizing Effect of colonialism was a like recurring theme that's being identified and kind of articulated, um, like how destructive that can be, um, even as a lingering effect, as like a main focus, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a huge part of the work. Oh, sorry, let me mute this chat.
0: Um. So, okay, so I'm trying to think of if there's anything else we should touch on, just to outline what. Post colonial theory is because it seems like this is a major topic in academia, and there's a number of other, besides Fanon, um, major writers like Edward Said and other authors. Are there other influential authors that we should mention or that people should know about or look into if they want to study mm-hmm. that as a core topic first? Yeah, I
1: really want to amplify the work of Sylvia Winter because she talks about astrology in her work. Um, mm. she talks about, um yeah, she talks about Greek and Roman. She calls it astronomy, but she's really talking about astrology,
0: okay, Okay. Um, cool. So let's see. So when it comes to the book, um over the past couple of years, I feel like I've heard more astrologers talking about um, post-colonial theory and sort of applying it to astrology and talking about what the implications are. Within the context of astrology, mm-hmm. um, one of the main people I often hear talking about this has been Dana Lynn Knuckles, who is at People's Oracle on Twitter. Um, but then also more recently and more more frequently, you over the past year or two as well. Um, what has been your approach, or or in what way have you wanted to integrate post colonial theory into your work as an astrologer?
1: Yeah, because like when I do readings, like they're mostly for people of color. So then, a lot of the symbols that are in Western astrology, I think they just they change so much in the readings. So, like you know, that's why I kind of wanted to talk about with the book, and like um yeah, um like we were talking about yeah we were talking about like you know what is post colonial theory like how does it live things like that. There's a lot of key concepts in post post colonial theory that are kind of integral to astrology too. Um, and so, like, you know, for example, like Fanon, um, yeah, he kind of like turned this dichotomy um, between self and other that Hegel was talking about. And he was talking about the other as a racial other. Um, for example, with Sylvia Winter's book, she talks about astrology and she calls it an ethno astronomy. So, like, what she says in um, this essay that she wrote uh, um, called Unsettling the Coloniality of Being um which is an amazing essay, is that she looks at how the human, the idea of the human is overrepresented. So like, you know, like so much of, um, as you were saying, post-colonialism is about how racial others are dehumanized, but she actually flips it. She looks at how the human is represented. And she talks about it in terms of religious terms and supernatural terms, but also humanist ones. So she doesn't really care whether something's religious or cultural, which I think we sometimes get bogged down with, with you know, science versus religion, things like that. She's saying, well, both of these cultural categories, she calls it the two-culture divide. She's saying that both of these categories, they actually work to represent an idea of the human. And this idea of the human... Um, it is something um and this is really important it's something that represses the economic struggle between the classes um so i mean i love that work cuz like when she talks about this difference um between the human and the other she calls it a colonial dif- difference and she points it at this divide between the spirit and the flesh which you know like yeah fa- that's fate and fortune that's spirit and flesh um so yeah, like a lot of what we're like just, you know, busy talking about on astral Twitter or as astrologers, it's living in post-colonial theory.
0: Okay. So there's a lot of concepts that maybe we inherit from culture or that either astrology has contributed to or that astrology has received from culture that are things that are there that that maybe we take for granted that we don't realize are tied in with other power structures that that are maybe like not so good in society that we've inherited sort of collectively.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: Okay. Um yeah, so maybe identifying some of those things is one of the primary things that people want to do in integrating post-colonial theory into astrology is identify maybe some of those things that are not so good. I mean, I know one of them has been uh, and I don't know how much this is tied in with post-colonial theory but one of them is like gender assumptions and assumptions about gender that are um taken for granted or that we can see taken for granted in older astrological texts that may not be so appropriate for for modern times
1: yeah yeah the question of gender it's really interesting cuz um like you know you know this but like the moon it's like thought of as feminine so much uh like you know currently but like, I guess, like, it didn't look like that was the case for, um, yeah, for, like, you know, all of its history. And so, like, yeah, with gender um, with gender and astrology, I think that there's an assumption that, well, the older traditional texts, like, they're going to be, like, more gender. They're going to be a little bit more gender, gender essentialist. They're going to advocate for these strict gender roles more. But I didn't find that to be the case. I found that like gender as we know it it's a modern invention and so the way that we remember it as a traditional thing like that's a construct of modernity actually
0: right i think you pointed out in your book and your book ends up primarily being a treatment of the planet and an application of like postcolonial theory to an analysis of the significations and meanings of the planet's uh, in different ways and and the way that that manifests in society both positively and negatively but, um you pointed out how the moon God in some ancient Mesopotamian cultures was um male and or conceptualized as male and not necessarily female, so that there's like this um discrepancy in the tradition where you can't always take it for granted that it's one thing or the other,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so, in the book, we talk about the moon. And then we talk about Venus, too. So there's kind of these like different types of genders. I think we think of gender as like so totalizing it's a monolith, it's like one binary, but it's actually several binaries between several different things. So with the moon we do we talk about reproductive labor, which is a completely different thing than gender um like with the um yeah chapter on Mars and Venus, we talk about how gender exists as a social category, which has nothing to do with reproduction, actually
0: hmm. okay. Uh, and what was the focus, or what what does it have to do with, or just to explain to people that haven't read it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, what I found was like ideas around femininity. Um, with like a lot of the symbolic representations of Venus and Mars, something that kept coming up was war. Um, yeah, gender. I think yeah, it was Paul Virilio. I don't know how to say his name, but he wrote that gender is a, a war machine. It's a um machination of war so like the how we think about like you know the feminine as something that's worthy of protection and mars as this enemy that kind of has to be protected against like that's what gender is doing it's making a case for war with reproduction it's different because reproduction has to do with value And reproduction um it's a type of labor and i think that you know I was actually at a talk where this was talked about with um, just this form of parents talking to each other, of queer parents. And something that was really surprising that someone mentioned was like, whoa, like when we really come down to it, like the issue with reproductive labor, it's not so much as an issue with gender, but of capitalism. Um, So like with reproduction, I think that it functions in a really different way, Um, like it's a different type of gender than femininity as something that's like you know supposed to be like precious or well protected um, or something to be exploited. Femininity is often kind of conceived as something that should be um, you know, kind of like ripe for exploitation.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things that you mentioned there. One of the things that I walked away from the book with was how you were trying to um, provide perspective by sort of stepping outside of our own culture today and pointing out the cultural assumptions that we're making in many cases about things by showing how some of those cultural assumptions have been different at different periods of time or or what's underlying some of those cultural assumptions. And it seems like that was a big emphasis of this approach is um, stepping outside of culture and looking at it a little bit more objectively in terms of some of the things that we're just assuming are the case but may not be universal truths.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of what we think about with gender is like really Western. Um, Yeah, like gender is colonial. How we think about gender and like just male and female binary is really colonial. So it's not universal. Um, it hasn't been around for that long, actually. And yeah, we take it for granted a lot, but like it's also like gender is an area of play for a lot of people too. So like, you know, um, like I'm not really saying like, well, don't use Venus, like, you know, don't talk about femininity. Like that's not really it. I think that when we use femininity, um, or Venus, like, for our own self expression, it does a different thing than when it's like administered by power.
0: Hmm. What do you mean by that? Uh, in, in, administered by power?
1: Um, if we think about the images that we're just constantly creating and circulating around what femininity feels like, um, what it looks like, how it's experienced, like a lot of our ideals around, for example, like beauty. Um, I mean, it kind of comes from power. But then, like, you know, the question is, like, what does it mean when we practice it? For example, like, it's a really different experience to hear a queer person talk about femininity um, than it is to hear a cis-het person talk about it. So, Mm. yeah, and, you know, I'm not saying, like, oh, you know, don't use these terms, don't use Venus. Like, it's not, like, anti um, any, like, kind of thing. It's more about, like, well, yeah, how do we actually – Use astrology as a language in a way where we're practicing uh, like care and we're um, you yeah, have practicing what people need
0: right. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, that's one of the major changes um that I've seen in the astrological community over the past decade and even over the past five years is that you know there was a real I talked about this in recent episodes where, in the mid, 2000s, I read like an I found an old article by Noel Till where he said that there, there's no young astrologers coming into the field, and that that all of the baby boomer generation, which was the last big influx in the 1960s in the West of the hippies and the quote unquote counterculture, they were all like in their 40s and 50s and were getting really old, and they weren't seeing newer astrologers coming into the field, and it seemed like the field was dying. And then all of a sudden, in the past 10 years, there's been this huge influx of new people into the astrological community and a new generation coming in and now starting to take over. One of the things that's really notable about that is the previous generation of astrologers and just my, as a young astrologer in my 20s, you know, 15 years ago during that time where I didn't see other young contemporaries, is um, the field wasn't as diverse. And all of a sudden, there's been a the field has become much more diverse over the course of the past ten years, and the type of astrologies that they're inheriting, um, you know, are not necessarily set up with that in mind because they were being written largely by a more—I don't know if the right term is like monocultural—but from a certain perspective. And yeah, that that seems like one of the things that's being addressed now is um, you know, is the astrology how to adapt astrology you know, to that in modern times and to the needs of people that are using it in the early 2020s. Right.
1: Yeah. Which like, yeah, I mean astrology, it's a language. So then it always changes. It always changes throughout practice. Like there's no original form of language that never exists.
0: Right. That was one of your talks last summer was you wrote, um, if astrology is a language, whose language is it? What was your like what was the meaning behind that?
1: Yeah, that was a really important question for me. And it still is because like, you know, as a person, like I feel like I don't have any cultural ownership. I don't really have like a sense of ownership over Western culture. And I also don't really have a sense of ownership over Chinese culture. Um, so like, you know, this idea of like, who does a language belong to? That was a really motivating question for me for a long time. And. Like, yeah, I mean the kind of like point where I'm at right now with language is just like well language um like the root of the word translation I don't know if this is true or if it's something that's just like kind of passed around but the root of um the word translation is treason. So language is treacherous. Um you know, it, it it doesn't like you know it's not it doesn't belong to anyone. It only exists in its circulation. So like you know, um that's why I'm so into like treating astrology as a language, not as a religion or um, an institution, but as a language that like it's only going to stay alive if we continue to practice it and if we continue to practice it it'll continue to change. Um and I mean, yeah, change is life. Um Yeah, and, and then you know, like this idea of like whose language is it? Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's so funny to kind of like see um like just how we describe our places in the world, which I feel like that's what astrology is. It's kind of pinpointing our place in the universe as something that is sometimes administered by states. Um cuz like, you know, a lot of a lot of astrology is um, associated with certain states, um like for example, like, you know, Chinese astrology. There is no Chinese astrology. Um, there's an astrology that works in a certain calendar because of the Chinese Empire. But the idea of what Chinese astrology is is as convoluted as the idea of modern China. And I think that like that's kind of the lens that I applied to Western astrology with this book, too.
0: Right. That makes sense. Um, so and that raises up like other questions like what is Western astrology that I wanted to talk about. But also, just to step back a moment to that previous point um, about how the astrological community is changing is that um, one of the things that's changing, and your book demonstrates that's also changing, is publishing. Where, you know, when I got into the field around like 1999 or 2000, I could go to a bookstore. There's a really great local bookstore here in Denver called Tattered Cover that had like a whole book uh, case full of like astrology books. And I sort of looked through them and got my start with some of those books at the time. But over the next decade or two, I watched the um, bookshelves, the astrology sections in bookstores shrink and shrink and shrink. Wow! Which is, you know, partially um, an effect of just the what was happening to the publishing industry in general uh, with the rise of the internet and you know large chain bookstores sometimes like like Borders going out of business and having to compete with Amazon or things like that but it was also part of that decline of that previous generation that was so into astrology starting in the 1960s and into this sort of decline of that um, and so major publishers just sort of stopped publishing astrology books and the major both in terms of like major publishers as well as even astrological publishers were publishing less and less and less and um it was really bad around the middle part of the last decade like the 2015 time frame And now all of a sudden, what's been interesting is it started to turn around and you've seen kind of like a slew of new astrology books being published by major publishers. Um, But one of the things that's changed is that the audiences that they're catering to and the the type of astrologers that are publishing book deals like um, there's Chani Nicholas's book, um, which came out I think last year, um, Mecca Woods's book, and then now your book. Um, so again, it's just like raising this point about how astrology is coming back, but like who is talking about astrology and the audiences that it's catering to is different than it was like 10 or 15 years ago as a really interesting point that's maybe hard to look at now. We just like take it for granted, you know, now that that should be the case, but it just wasn't like 10 or 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, totally. I think like I found a Goodreads like list of something. It was like all the astrology books written by people of color. And at the time of like whoever made that list, like there were only 11. So I know that there's under 20 now even. Um, But I mean, yeah, like it's kind of funny because like If you go on, like, you know, lesbian Tinder, like, Lex, um, every post, everyone's like, you know, I'm a Gemini rising, like, looking for, like, whatever sign. Um, So, it's, like, it's so queer. Um, Like, I feel like astrology has been kind of part of this feminist movement for a long time. Like, it was really a part of, like, that zine culture in the 80s, Um, and eventually that was kind of, like, co-opted by major magazines, but… Like, I feel like it's kind of living as this feminist practice, which is queer, which is not white, um, like, you know, kind of today, which is really exciting to get into.
0: Yeah. I mean, just because there weren't a lot of books, either by queer authors or that explicitly addressed um, things from that perspective or that had like an astrologer that, um, openly like advocated for like same-sex relationships or something like that didn't exist as much prior to a decade or two ago and if you read books from like the 1970s about what they say about um like queer relationships or other things like that it's obviously coming more from a heterosexual standpoint and illustrates the Im- sort of importance of um why it's important for people to be able to speak from different perspectives, because to the extent that astrology is an extension of culture, if there's only one part of the culture that's like talking about it or providing the the books or the language for that, then it's not actually as inclusive or comprehensive of the culture as it as it should be,
1: yeah, totally. Yeah. And there's like these ideas around what traditional astrologers um, like kind of look like too. I found um there's I feel like there's this like idea of like you know it's like this white chad but like that's not the case uh, there's like so many people who practice traditional astrology and they're all doing it in really different ways and in interesting ways
0: Yeah last year for example there were debates about because there's sometimes debates that come up about that about like the dignity scheme and the appropriateness of essential dignities and whether this is a system that's based on something older and oppressive and no longer appropriate, or then there were responses to that last year with, for example, some of the Dignity Babes uh, hashtag that was arguing that these are appropriate distinctions to make that have been used by astrologers that are are queer or coming from different perspectives in a way that that's like appropriate or healing and, and effective from a technical as well as a conceptual or philosophical perspective. So it's been interesting for me seeing some of those those debates happening over the past few years.
1: Yeah. And I, I would also say, like, I think that's part of the book too. I would also say, like, if a language talks about oppression. Um, then there's a difference between an oppressor using that language and an oppressed person using that language. Because language is like they're supposed to describe oppression. That's what they're supposed to be doing. So if we're talking about gender and astrology, I'm like, yeah, let's have a lot of terms to talk about it. Like we shouldn't be talking about it. Like there's kind of, I feel like sometimes um, there's this kind of flinching of like, oh, well, gender, it's so oppressive, so let's stay away from it. Let's degender everything. But like you know, then you're just kind of like jumping over real, experienced oppression. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a major debate that's been happening that I've seen bubbling up and starting to become more and more prominent about the inherited um, distinctions between gender and binaries in astrology that come from the earlier part of the astrological tradition and whether whether those should be rejected because there are people that are non-binary or not gendered or whether they should be retained in order to be able to talk about Gender at all and address that even in a non binary context. And it seems like there's different people that have different perspectives. So, your perspective is that you come out uh, or come down on the side of more wanting to retain that because it gives you the ability to talk about gender in a way that you might not be able to otherwise?
1: Yeah, it gives you a language and it gives you um, some communication. Like, you know, there's a reason why we use Venus Um, instead of using like gender, for example. Um, and like part of that is because then there's more play involved. Like non-binary people talk about gender all the time because we have to think about it all the time. Like and gender, it's not really just so much about like aesthetics or clothes, um, clothing. It's about um, yeah, like you know how comfortable are we at our jobs? Like it's about like every kind of fact of existence too. So like yeah, you know of course there should be a way to talk about gender. Um, that's my perspective.
0: Okay. So that kind of brings up, I mean, in early tw- in like academia in the early 20th century, they started studying ancient astrology as this oddity. Um, but one of the arguments that the scholars made in defense of studying ancient astrology, even though they didn't believe it was true, was that they said astrology in different time periods is a reflection of the culture of its time. And therefore, if you go back and study ancient astrology, what you're actually doing is you're studying Getting an inside look at different cultures and what they, what the cultural assumptions are that they're making by seeing how the astrologers interpret birth charts and things like that because they're talking about people's lives and presumably providing um, and using a language that accurately describes what they think about the world in some sense. Um, so it seems like that's part of what's going on here in terms of adapting modern astrology and the language of astrology or contemporary astrology, to the contemporary world, so that it addresses those things that are important to the people that are using it, but also when you're seeing clients, so that you have a language to use with your clients who are coming from a wide variety of different backgrounds.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like I always say to clients, like astrology, like, um, like this isn't what's like kind of doing the healing in a session. What's doing the healing is yourself. Um, so you know this language, like you can use it however you want. Like there's no wrong way to use it
0: right. That was something that was a question I had in the book, uh, the extent to which, with astrology and the way that you're characterizing it, whether um, well, maybe that's too big of a topic to get into about yeah, what astrology is doing and and whether it's like a phenomenon that's occurring in nature or whether it's primarily a language that's being used. Amongst people socially. And I wasn't sure if I got a full sense of what your answer to that question. Because one of the things you actually say explicitly in the book at one point is that you feel like in the process of writing the book, oftentimes you were raising more questions than you were answering. And for you, the process of writing was more asking the questions rather than necessarily answering them, it seems like, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because like I've been doing astrology workshops, like, you know, consultations in community for like, you know, like years and the questions that always come up, they can't really be answered. And the questions that come up are, um, like basically, well, if Western astrology, if it's not universal, if it is specifically Western, then how does it work? Um, like, or rather, like, you know, like, what is it doing? Um, yeah, how is the work being done? And then another question, cause like a lot of like with tropical astrology, like it's climate based. So then it's talking about geography too. So it's like, you know, what about the global south? Like, you know, what about um yeah, like climates that are not similar to Rome? Um yeah, what about that question? And then like climate change. Climate change always comes up as a question too with the tropical astrology. So like, you know, we can't really answer these questions. Um yeah, I'm really interested in just kind of like asking as many questions as possible. Um that question I think you asked about like, like, you know, is astrology, is it like basically like the power of belief? Like, is it a social construct or is there some supernatural component to it? Um, I think both exist at the same time. So that question, it doesn't really bother me. Like, I think that astrology is a social construct, but I think that there is something really mystical about imagination. So yeah, and you know, that's kind of like where I'm at with you know the things i believe but mm-hmm.
0: one of the things you mentioned um really quickly there that might be good to talk about is is western astrology universal and you take the position that it's not necessarily um could you could you expand on on that more or what what you mean by that
1: yeah for sure um like first off like to kind of define western astrology or how i see it um is that well the west It's not really like, um, like a fact of a thing. The West is a certain perspective. Um, the West is like most of the materials that make up the West and most of the labor that is being done to create the West that is actually non-Western. Um, like, for example, like, um, in her book, like, uh, what's it called? The intimacies of four continents. Like Lisa Lowe talks about the English tea ceremony. And this is like, you know, it's so culturally English. It's so Western. It's like part of Western culture. But then she looks at the materials that make up the ceremony. And she's like, well, you know, the wood, that's from the West Indies. Tea is from India and China. Um, The cotton making up the dresses of the people doing the um, ceremony, like that's from the Americas. Like a lot of the materials, it's not Western. So the Western, it's a, Um, certain way of organizing things. It's a certain way of looking at the world. And so, like, with Western astrology, like, I know that Rome, it's like, yeah, no Roman walk around in, like, 2080 was like, I'm a Westerner. Like, you know, like, Rome is not out, not in the West, but it's remembered as being the root of the West. So it's remembered as Western. So um, I think you mentioned, well, you know, like, there's this idea that, um, like, if we look at like information from astrology birth charts from kind of like back in time we can understand the cultural context that was performed in um yeah i have questions around that and maybe that's just like my own thing but um i think that we can't really figure out the cultural context that a lot of these older things were performed in i think that we can only understand more about how these things that survive are Remembered and recirculated. Um, so, yeah, and that's
0: mm-hmm. okay. yeah. I mean, part of it. so that was a great example of the the English tea ceremony and how the point there is just that it's actually a component of you know different things from different cultures that have been adapted and now that that we now perceive in retrospect as a uniquely English or Western thing, but it's not necessarily if you deconstruct it and break it down to into some of its primary components. Um, And that's a similar process that you went through with the book where you sort of deconstructed Western astrology and some of the core language of Western astrology through the planets and some of their traditional significations in order to get to a similar thing uh, in terms of looking at where some of those different components that we use in the language of astrology came from. And it seems like that was, I want to say from my perspective as a reader, like one of the main purposes of the book. And you even labeled each chapter like The etymology of the planet of certain planets,
1: yeah, yeah, that's the kind of breakdown of it, yeah,
0: okay. Um, so the purpose of that, then, and the focus, then, in talking about Western astrology is, um, it seemed like sometimes there's a tension, there's a tension that comes up between, and I see this, this is already something I see in the community in looking at like astrology Twitter and the discussions around applying post-colonial theory to astrology is a tension um, between wanting to embrace astrology versus sometimes to the extent that astrology is seen as tied in with colonialism, wanting to reject it or reject parts of it um, because of that perceived connection with colonialism and that being sort of a tension in the dialogue that's happening today surrounding astrology and and post-colonial thought. Um, totally and that-
1: yeah and that's not unique to astrology you see that with art with literature with everything mm-hmm.
0: so maybe let's expand on that then because that's that's definitely one of my central things and i that i was curious about especially going into your book is how that would be addressed and like where you come down on that and it seems like it's it's complicated basically right that's that's the answer is it's complicated
1: it's really complicated and a lot of the emotions around it, a lot of the emotions around like, you know, just what have I inherited from my ancestors that still lives in me? Like this kind of thing. It's like like you can't really like answer those emotions without shift, being able to shift the reality. Um and the thing with is like, you know, colonialism, it's an ongoing project. So a lot of the issues that we're responding to emotionally with astrology, like they they can't be solved on our own. Um, so I think that, like you know, it like that tension that you are talking about with, well, you know, how do I change the culture that produced me? Basically, like that tension, like it can't really be resolved until we see how change happens.
0: Okay, um, in terms of though, like one of the. Th- one of the tensions then when it comes to ancient astrology is um, and one of the things that you do, for example, in looking at things like Hellenistic astrology is there's a tension between treating Western astrology as a singular product of the Roman world and a impulse to reject it then to the extent that then Western astrology is associated with Roman imperialism versus this other perspective, which is, that you acknowledge several times in the book, which is acknowledging that there's many different cultures and languages that contributed to astrology over time. And it sets up a basic tension there in terms of whether this is something to be rejected or something to be almost embraced in some sense.
1: Yeah, like what to embrace, what to reject. Um, I feel like those are always like just kind of good questions to have. Um, and the question, it's not really whether astrology like originated in Rome. Um, it's like there's like so many different types of Rome that continue to exist, so many different memories of what Rome is, um, Yeah, whether that's in our military or government um, or like whatever it is. And like, yeah, because like the, the point, uh, the reason why the point isn't that like, well, astrology, it's Roman, so then it has to be re- rejected is because a lot of like when the times when astrology is cited, it's cited as not being Roman, like a lot of people like in Rome, they were like going to Egypt. And then um, a lot of people in the British empire, they were going to their colonies in uh, India and saying that they learned a lot about astrology there. Um, but again, like, you know, the materials that create the West, they're not Western in origin, but they're Western in perspective. They're Western how we remember them. So, yeah, like the kind of, um, yeah, like, I, you know, like the kind of, Um, like the book, it's not saying, well, yeah, astrology, it's Roman. So that's Western because we use the Senate because the United States of America, we have a Senate, which is Roman. Um, We have a Roman idea around the military. Like, you know, you can join the military and get these privileges. Um, Like the Romans, they use the military to kind of like, um, like uh, get people who are enslaved to become citizens. Like, so like, you know, a lot of like art institutions, like they look Roman, but they're just remembered that way. So the West, it's not really like a historical thing; it's kind of like a collage. It's really a historical.
0: One of the points that you made in the book was that at different periods in history over the past two thousand years, there's been like classical revivals in culture where people have gone back and then tried to emulate the Romans or emulate what they thought the Romans were doing at different points in society and that's led to different like outcomes in our history over the past 2000 years.
1: Yeah, like with the French Revolution, like um I think it was Marx who said, well they're like kind of like wearing togas. Um they're trying to like play as Romans. Um with I mean more recent history, um yeah, like Trump was really into neoclassical architecture. Like he actually wanted to make a bill where all the buildings that we create are like, I guess, government built, um, that they have to be neoclassical in style. Um, so like, I think that when white supremacy feels like it's under threat, what often happens is that there is this resurgence of neoclassical styles, aesthetics, things like that. And what a lot of times happens and this happened between the two world wars when there was that huge like fascist movement within Europe um what happened was like astrology became really big and like you know the astrologers they weren't always right wing like kind of extremists. Uh, they were actually like kind of um, like persecuted sometimes and but like these two things they kind of tend to coincide. So, like, I don't know, like, I don't know why, but I found it interesting that it's like, well, we do have this like really strong right wing, you know, backlash revival, whatever you want to call it, and astrology is like really popular now, but then it's not being practiced by right wing people all the time.
0: Yeah, although you made the point that sometimes um, it is used by people in power, like you said, at J.P. Morgan or. Um, Ronald Reagan, for example, in the 1980s, and different situations like that, where it is being used by those with power in some in some instances.
1: Yeah, Hitler had an astrologer. Um, so, like, that, assume- that was
0: one point that I wasn't sure about because I've been trying to research like what the Nazis, if they, what their relation was to astrology, and it was yeah. complicated because really. Just because they, they did throw a lot of astrologers in concentration camps in the 1940s. And I'm still trying to understand what exactly happened with World War II and I'm not sure what Hitler's relationship was with astrology. We know what some of his lieutenants were, um, but that was one thing I was a little um, unsure about in terms of that, that statement at one yeah, point.
1: Yeah. I have a book by like an astrologer who claims that he was forced to work for the Nazis. Um yeah but like you know i guess like i looked into this book and it's like contested cuz it it looks like this guy might have been like writing it um as like kind of a claim to fame or something like that too
0: yeah there's this astrologer named louis louis de wall that wrote a book afterwards and he said he was like pressured into doing it but it's not really clear whether he was doing it of his own free will or what and there was a very famous story about astrology where one of hitler's lieutenants flew to Britain, um has flew to Britain under uh, like a conjunction of planets in Taurus, a stellium, and attempted to make a peace deal because he thought it was an auspicious astrological indication for making peace with Britain. And then, as soon as Hitler heard about this, he they rounded up all the astrologers and threw them in concentration camps. Oh, wow. and and so that's one of the complicated relation things about the issues with the extent to which some of the Nazis were, Using astrology or using it for propaganda purposes versus actually, you know, many astrologers died um, as a result of that, including some famous ones. So I just wanted to be a little careful about that because, yeah, sometimes people in power do use astrology, but in terms of linking it specifically with Nazism or saying Hitler used or even believed in it, it's not really that clear.
1: For sure, yeah. I think that we see that from people in power a lot. It's like, well, you know, this, like, this thing, this style, this aesthetic, it's being used for propaganda purposes. But then the people who kind of practice that or where it came from, like, are, um, yeah, marginalized, oppressed.
0: Yeah. That, so that was a major focus, and that's part of the subtitle of the book: was reading the planets through capital, power, and labor." And notions of power were one of the main things that you focused on, and that's a good like right away in one of the first chapters with the Sun, you really focused on things like how um, uh, like monarchies or like a king would have power is not through I think you said like dictatorial or authoritarian executions of power, but through attracting like revolving um, spheres of power like around them that like radiated down or outwards or something like that. It was like a very um, interesting imagery in terms of how you're describing this within the context of the Sun and the way that power sometimes works when it comes to dynamics with the Sun.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that like, you know, like, yeah, this is just like kind of a, like more recent um, study of uh, the Sun God like Louis. I can't remember what number it is, Louis the 15th or something.
0: Might have been sure, yeah,
1: yeah, something like that, um, like the the guy who built Versailles, and yeah, a lot of the people around him, they were invested in him him having power because then they could have prestige, so like, yeah, and like power, it doesn't work in a top down way, always, it always works in a way where people who are under power also produce it.
0: Yeah, and I thought that was a really interesting and brilliant discussion, and that provided a very great, interesting insight into what you were trying to do with the book in taking and applying some modern, sort of like political theories and explaining them in the context of this language of astrology and things like the meaning and and traditional understanding of the sun, but giving a different perspective on it in that way. Um, so I don't know if we, you can expand on that any more, but how that works in terms of um, Hierarchies of power, sort of, is what you went into with that and how that's relevant in other areas as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like with the sun, we're talking about light, we're talking about sight, um, we're talking about gold. Um, and with light and sight, we're talking about surveillance, actually. Um, with gold, with these centers of power, we're talking about capital. So then we're looking at, well, what, like, you know, what makes a capital? What does a capital really do? And um, with surveillance, we're looking at, like, whoa, like, um, yeah, like, you know, this is something that we did in Fresh Voices is, like, we talked about the sun, we talked about surveillance, and then we looked at, like, when we are actually in control of the light conditions that we're visible under, like, um, you know, whether we are in, like, we're able to have control over lighting at our jobs, um, you know, because some people are, and then some people are not. And so, like, we talked about – we did some journaling just about how our bodies feel when we are not in control of the lighting. Um, we did some journaling about how our bodies feel when we are in control of the lighting. Um, but, like, lighting, it's such a – yeah, it's, like, it's a, such a power relation. Because, like, you know, kids, they can't really control lighting. Um, incarcerated people are not allowed to control lighting Um if you go into a store, you're not in control of the light. If you go into public space, you're not in control of the light. Um, you know, we kind of like we're only in control of the light kind of in our private homes,
0: right? And you also talked about historically how things changed with the advent of like electrical lighting and the ability to light spaces that previously couldn't be lit or to light them artificially using artificial light.
1: Yeah, yeah, electric and also gas lights. Gas lights were used for a long time before electric lights. Um, but like, you know, one of the things that Napoleon did after the French Revolution was like, he opened up the streets. He made them a lot wider and he lit them with artificial lights. He opened up these big plazas lit with artificial lights. And he did that because then like people can't really create a barricade again and people can't really gather without being seen.
0: Mm. Okay. Right. So surveillance and um power and also capital. Like one of the things that you focused on in the gold in the book that's a recurring theme, but especially in the sun section, was the traditional associations of the sun with gold and like the question of like what gold is and what's behind the meaning or the um the the power, the capital that it represents.
1: Yeah gold in terms of like the idea of gold, but also like the actual substance. Cause most of the gold that we have is from South Africa. And it's buried in underground vaults under the banks in London and New York. Um so like there wasn't a whole lot of gold until around like 1930s or something like that. And then suddenly there's a lot of gold um coming from South Africa. And then it was all like gold it Basically it like comes out and then it's like um circulating for a little while as um like gifts and then it gets buried again. Um so now all that gold it's it's buried again, um, just in a different part of the world. And gold as an idea too, because like gold it has to do with race. There's this idea of like gold, that's royalty, that's the ruling class, um, there's the golden age, there's the golden race, um, which is like, you know, eventually like eroded, becomes the silver race, the bronze race, um, the race. Um, and so it's like kind of how we think about like the future and then utopia too.
0: Yeah. One of the themes you focused on in the sun chapter as well as the Saturn chapter were ideas of either looking back to like an idealized golden age in the past or. Conversely, like looking forward to some idealized point in in the future.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because like both exist with um, Hesiod and Virgo. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but they're talking about these golden ages. And Hesiod, like, he's kind of a pessimist. He's saying, like, well, the golden age, like, that's way in the past. We'll never have that again. Um, But then Virgo, like, he's saying, well, there will be another golden age in the future. Um, and it'll come with this this like Apollo like child king.
0: Um. Right. And just some of the ways that that those idealized frameworks influence things. and that that of mm-hmm. course comes up mm-hmm. you know also in astrology. and and recently over the past decade, there's been this revival of traditional astrology and this looking back and sort of idealizing of the past as astrologers recover parts of their tradition that they didn't really have any access to in previous generations um and there's some similar discussions that come up then in terms of idealizations of either the past or or the future or what have you
1: yeah yeah the idea um the past it's it's always idealized whether that's because it's like oh well, roman that's like the backbone of western society or it's like oh these non white cultures they're kind of like our ancestors and then there's this weird thing that happens where Non-white people are seen to be like culturally older than white people, um so yeah, and just kind of idealizing the passage of time. Um, but I think that's what astrology is talking about, like when we practice astrology, like we're kind of working with time, too,
0: right. um yeah, definitely. um, working with time, and you had some phrase about that in the book um about the temporal like nature of astrology or something like that.
1: Yeah, because like, like basically, what astrology is, it's like a proposal for how we structure time, and yeah, and so like you know, thinking about how our images or associations about how time is thought of, like even within the practice of astrology, like that's super important.
0: Right, definitely. Um, so, in terms of like one of the things we we're going to talk about was tradition versus modernity and the supposed opposition between the two. Um, uh, and ideas about how those work together in t- order to create our conception of the West. Um, one of the things, like I wasn't sure going into it, and I felt like you went a little bit. I was curious how you conceptualize your own role as an astrologer, or your own background and in technical influence, or what tradition, quote unquote, that you represent. Um, I felt like in some places you went harder against like traditional or, or Roman or Hellenistic astrology than I expected. And I was curious like what, not what the goal is, but w- how you conceptualize your own background in astrology.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's something that's always changing. Like, you know, my influences, I mean, you, um, Demetra George, Sam Reynolds. Um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like I'm a Mercury in Pisces, so everyone kind of influences me, like even okay. if they disagree with each other too. Um, but like, in terms of how I practice astrology, um, yeah, I see it as a form of care work again. So, like, if, like for example, if I have a client who's like, you know, I really want to use an asteroid, like, I'll never say no to that. Like, yeah, you know, if it works for you for talking about something, then let's use it. Um, yeah, it's just like, it's so important to me that astrology is whatever it is you need it to be. Um, and yeah, I know that like that's maybe like a little bit different than you. I don't know
0: um, I mean, to a certain extent i I always have a tension between that as well as a tension between my modern versus traditional tendencies. and you know, I wrote the a book on Hellenistic astrology that took me ten years, but at the very end of it, I try to be very deliberate about saying, I don't want this to be used as a basis for traditional fundamentalism and mm. that one of the the last thing i said in the book was just that astrology has never been static it's always been growing and changing in different ways mm. and it's never been this singular like fixed thing because i worried that sometimes when people look back into the past they can have a tendency to as you talk about in your book like idealize it and think that astrology in ancient times was perfect and that astrology in modern times has Devolved somehow or has become Mm. decrepit or something like that. But what's funny is, like, astrologers in almost every age always have that tendency, even in the second century. For example, Valens had that tendency where, even though we look back the second century and we think about that as being the high point of the practice of Hellenistic astrology, with both Valens and Ptolemy living in Alexandria in the second century, and that's where most of the horoscopes survive from. If you look at Valens, like, he thought. He looked back to this past where he thought there was an idealized period where like Nechepsa and Petasirius were a king that ruled over Egypt and practiced astrology during some sort of golden age. And so he looked back and idealized that mm-hmm. himself. Um, so there's always that tendency, no matter what. And I wanted to be careful not to set up a premise for some sort of fundamentalism in modern times.
1: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, I think that we're definitely in agreement about like, you know, not wanting to idealize like this perfect idea of the past. Um and with the tradition and modern thing, like um yeah, I mean a lot of like what we mean when we say traditional gender ideas, for example, is like we're talking about modern gender ideas cuz like ideas around yeah, around gender, like they're being produced constantly by capitalism, and that's an ongoing thing. So it's not something that we inherit from any tradition. Because like, I feel like that happens when we idealize the past too. Is sometimes we villainize the past as the only place where oppression exists, um, but it it exists in the present too. Um, so, like, yeah, like that's the whole thing with tradition um and modernity is that, like the two they they're not really that different. They're both about progress. The idea that something is traditional is about progress. The idea that something is modern is about progress. And progress is just one way of keeping track of time,
0: okay. Um, I guess that was one question I had from the book was, to what extent do you? want the book to be seen or interpreted as a rejection of tradition or rejection of older ways versus more of a critique or or an analysis of it in order to gain perspective on it in some sense
1: yeah i mean i feel like we can't really change tradition cuz it got us to be where we are right now um so yeah i'm very i'm uninterested in what people are actually doing in like you know, 280, actually. Um, that's why I would never call myself a traditional astrologer. I really respect people who do. And I think that I'm interested in the present. I'm interested in changing the present. So it's not like, oh, um, you know, reject traditional astrology, reject modern astrology. It's look at what is circulating. Um, and yeah, and like, here's some things that you can use astrology to talk about in your practice. Um, and these are ongoing problems. These are problems that shape your ex- existence. They're problems that shape your experiences. They're problems that shape your communities. So like astrology, it's um yeah, it's such an important tool for healing because it is able to talk about these things.
0: Right. And it's the extent to which it can talk about those things that it can be healing. Um, and, and that's what you seem to want to bring into it. Yeah. Um, and you still use some traditional, like technical concepts, like, for example, like you did a Twitter thread the other day on, on the exaltations mm-hmm. and interpreting those in a modern context, I think, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I use traditional concepts like rulership, um, exaltations. I think it's a fantastic way to talk about visibility. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I like Confucius, like that's a traditional concept. He's really asking for social accountability. um,
0: yeah, um, one of the questions was, I don't know where I put it, but one of the questions I'd been thinking about a lot myself over the past year was, to what extent can astrology be like apolitical versus to what extent is? one's politics naturally going to show up in one's astrology and how much is that actually a good thing or an important thing? It seems like for you that that integrating your, your politics and your worldview is actually an, an important thing and plays a crucial role in your astrology that you're very um, like forward about, but also think is, is crucial to your actual practice in some ways, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think anything can be apolitical. Yeah, so I don't think astrology can be apolitical either. Yeah,
0: well, yeah let's let's expand on that because that's probably true and it's something I see that comes up in the communities even sometimes when astrologers think that they're be, being apolitical about, let's say, talking about a recent event. Um, sometimes it's like a blind a blind spot for them and they don't realize to the extent to which their political views are actually influencing their interpretation of the astrology.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think you're aware of your political position or you're not um and i mean oftentimes this isn't true 100% the case but you're going to be more made aware of your political position if you are oppressed and you mm. yeah you're not going to be so aware of it if you are the oppressor um and yeah and, you know it's not like people are divided into these different categories it's like i'm not aware of the political realities of the positions like when I'm the oppressor.
0: Right. Yeah, like when you're the one in power or you have the upper hand, it's something that you're taking as a natural or as a given because it's not uncomfortable to you, it's a place of comfort, and therefore, it's harder to stand outside of that. Whereas if something's actually creating discomfort for you in your consciousness, it's much easier to identify that as coming from somebody's like political perspective or their Um there I'm I'm trying to think of the word of of that I did an episode with Diana Rose Harper on last year, your privilege. Like when you have that, it's easier to take it for granted.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For example, like stairs. Um like stairs are political. I don't experience them as political because I'm able-bodied. I can go up and down stairs, but they are.
0: Right. Like if you were in a wheelchair and you came up to a flight of stairs. Then all of a sudden, it's not something you're taking for granted, but it's an actual like obstacle in your in your life.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then like how many stairs there are, where there are stairs, then that becomes a political issue.
0: Right. So it's not, or or it might be something where other people treat that as a political issue, but for you, it actually has a tangible impact on your life that um, is not purely political because it's it's personal in in a sense. So the political. Being personal makes it not just like an abstract concept of politics, but something that has a, a immediate impact on your life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay, so that's and that's like a recurring theme throughout the book in terms of why, for you, it's important to be very open about what your political views are and to integrate them into your astrology because of that really personal role that politics plays, especially for people that are in are not in positions of power.
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: Okay. One of the points that you brought up about that that I thought was really interesting and good in the context of astrology also that kind of ties into that was you mentioned Ptolemy and Ptolemy's like some of his geographical rationalizations talking about different parts of the Earth and different astrological influences or signatures that they were supposedly under, but he was framing that relative to... Alexandria, where he lived, as the like neutral starting point that didn't have any specific description necessarily. It was like everywhere else was being measured relative to that, but his location itself was neutral somehow.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So in that case, like um, he's talking about how because well, he's he's in the northern hemisphere, and so like. You know the sun travels closer to the equator, so he's saying, "Well, people living like southern to him—oops, sorry—are um, people living kind of southern to him that they are like hot in disposition." Oh, sorry. Here, let me mute that chat too. Sure. Sorry, I don't usually get texts, but except from my birthday. So. Right.
0: Happy <laughs> Happy Solar Return, by the way.
1: Oh yeah, today's my birthday. Yeah, um, so we scheduled
0: mm-hmm. it for for this and you're so you're in Aries and you said with the Mercury in Pisces.
1: I'm in Aries with Mercury and Mars in Pisces. Um, yeah, and Aquarius rising.
0: Oh, nice. Fellow Aquarius rising. Um, do you share your or via uh, a digression? I was going to say do you share your chart but maybe let's finish the current present thought.
1: Oh, right, yeah. What were we talking about?
0: Uh Ptolemy and his relativism. Oh,
1: right, yeah.
0: About his geographical location in Alexandria.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when Ptolemy, um, he's writing about what he calls particular astrological concerns, like he's living in the northern hemisphere. So then the sun is like, it's moving closer to, to the equator. It's hotter, uh, like south to him. Um, but he's saying, well, people who live like in the southern regions, like they're hot in disposition. And he's comparing that with the sun. Um, he's talking about like the moons, um, yeah, the moon's phases and like, The east and west thing, too. And he's saying, Well, people have like particular cultural differences because of these um, astrological things. Um, But then, like, he's totally ignoring his own like center region, he's just assuming like he has no characteristics or something, Um, right? Which, yeah, um, yeah, that's like that's kind of like that's one of the questions that I think that people ask a lot is, Well, this. cosmology that was kind of like well it's at least like thought of as being originating in Rome I mean it's here in the United States um as a settler cosmology like it doesn't really describe like um like Capricorn season as being really cold and sad like that's not true in like Australia um but like somehow like the idea of like well, when the sun's in Capricorn like this is what kind of happens, like it's still being practiced,
0: right, so just that there's sometimes like cultural assumptions going into it based on where it was practiced or the cultures that um contributed to it and that astrology always has that relative stance um almost like universally, it's almost like one of the core things that's if there was a recurring thing throughout the astrological tradition, like that relative take always seems to be it, and that's something you contrast with the. Conceptualization that astrology is is universal, which you you point out is not necessarily true, or you don't necessarily think it's true.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's no such thing as a um, universal astrology because there's no such thing as a universal experience.
0: Mm, okay. Um, all right. So, what were some of the other topics that we wanted to touch on that we had written notes on, just as discussion topics for post-colonial. Astrology and postcolonial theory in modern times, and how that relates to the practice of contemporary astrology. I mean, I know you po- pointed out one, actually, what I thought was a compelling example with Alan Leo and his some of his views about like going to India, which is during the period of still British colonial rule over India, and um, him being influenced, especially on by views of karma and reincarnation, and then. Incorporating that into his astrology in some way, and that was something that you kind of objected to in a sense, um, and that that was something that was clearly happening in the context of, to a certain extent, of um, colonialism.
1: Yeah, because yeah, I think there's this writer, Jane Iwabuchi, Jane Naomi Iwabuchi who talks about this, um, but in an American context, and this is really like recent, this is like 1960s, but he's talking about how, um, like, well, like I like to call it American Buddhism because that's what it is. It's like American pop Buddhism. Um, A lot of ideas around American Buddhism, it's these people like, what's that guy's name? Alan Watts, um, these like kind of like white people who are looking at, Asian culture and then um the way that they're treating it is like, well, this culture it's been somehow degraded and like I have to rescue it and then I have to um become a like um organizer of it and because I'm the rescue and organizer of this like cultural artifact, then I become the authority on this too. Um so like that's kind of what's happening in um yeah, Alan Leo's day with like India, with um, yeah, the because, like the way that he quotes, um, you know, Indian astrologers is he never mentions anyone by name, yeah, he like he right, yeah, he just says like Indian astrology as a whole, which is like, I don't know, it's so confusing. India is one of the most diverse places on the planet.
0: Yeah, I when I was researching Al Leo. Early on, um at kepler, he um he was like very through theosophy. And because the Theosophical Society moved their headquarters there to India, he mentions his trips to India as having a major impact on him. And I wrote a paper once um talking about Indian astrology influencing Alan Leo in a major way, and then therefore influencing the course of Western astrology, modern Western astrology in the twentieth first twentieth century. But my friend Kenneth Miller wrote a counterpaper, like a critique, pointing out that Alan Leo doesn't really seem to have been that familiar with the techniques of Indian astrology, but instead he just sort of had adopted some of those religious concepts of of karma and reincarnation and incorporated that into his philosophy. But then he, you know, through theosophy, really did made it, you know, did something quite different with it that was not um necessarily like closely allied with the actual culture that he got that from and I guess that brings up the whole broader topic which is kind of tricky of the idea of like cultural appropriation and when that is something that is bad and 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 wrong or something that shouldn't be done versus when um learning from different cultures is something that's positive or constructive in different ways and what the line is between those two things. Because I think that's a really important discussion in astrology because due to the history of astrology over the past 4,000 years, it's had so many different contributions from different cultures and astrology astrologers naturally talked with each other in exchange techniques and ideas and philosophies and um, yeah, um what the role is of when something is cultural appropriation versus when it's something that's more whatever the constructive or appropriate version of that is.
1: Yeah. Um, Cultural appropriation, like whether something that you do is appropriative or not, it's not something that you can control through your individual actions because cultural appropriation happens when there's a power imbalance. Um, So the reason why cultural appropriation is offensive is not because you know, it's like, oh, this is like, you know, my cultures and that's our intellectual property and no one else can do it. Like that's not why it's offensive. Um, the reason why it's offensive is because people who have power in a society often mimic those that they are oppressing while also um yeah, trying to erase those very people. Um, so you know, like yeah, like that's just kind of like a like a really clear distinction between the two. Um, Could you and give like whether- an, ex-
0: an example of that, or do you? Because I know you give a couple examples in the book, and I am trying to think of them. But is there one, like, an example of that just culturally that stands out?
1: Yeah, yeah. Boston Tea Party. Um, people kind of storming this, like, you know, this ship and throwing all the tea into the water. They're dressed in what they believe are appropriations of indigenous people. Um, and at the same time, while they're appropriating these like ideas around these aesthetics uh, for their own uses, they're also engaged in this genocidal project. So that's one example.
0: Right. That was something that you talked about and you talked about a few different instances of that of sometimes um, Americans appropriating parts of um, indigenous American culture, uh, but then, still like it just being like like picking out a piece of that, but otherwise not respecting it or not being supportive of it as its as its own unique thing,
1: yeah, yeah, and also, like you know, yeah, Alan Leo appropriating um yeah, ideas around karma, or reincarnation, but then like being a colonizer in India. Um that's a pretty clear case of cultural appropriation. so whether you are culturally appropriating or not, like that's not your choice um, yeah, it's not something that's up to you or something that you can change with your individual actions um it actually it points at these larger problems
0: okay. so it's something that's there in society that you're Um, participating in. But I guess one of the questions people might have today or astrologers especially might have is is how can I um, study different cultures or different approaches to astrology and in some instances integrate some of that knowledge or wisdom into my own without doing something that's harmful or that is inappropriate, especially when it comes to whatever culture they're studying at the time or other instead of culture, let's say other astrological tradition.
1: I think that you would have to figure out why you want to study it. yeah, this is something that I want to ask every white person who's interested in East Asian cosmologies, like why? Yeah what mm. are the reasons?
0: Right. I mean, I'm thinking of other instances, for example, of like, let's say, um if you want to study the astrological tradition, there was a lot of astrologers. Where the locus of activity moved to like Baghdad and and astrologers were writing in Arabic in the eighth and ninth centuries. Mm -hmm. And so different astrologers might want to study that period in order to
1: see see what
0: see what astrology is like and and integrate it into their own practice. Mm -hmm. So it's like, are things like that considered would that be considered cultural appropriation, or is that an appropriate role in terms of astrologers studying parts of the astrological tradition in order to better or create more effective techniques in their own practice.
1: Yeah, I don't really see that as pr- appropriative because that's you know the Middle Ages. Um, yeah, you're not like you're not really um, yeah and, like and like you know the like the astrology being done in Baghdad around that time like it's part of the tradition of Western astrology too, or it's been absorbed into how we think about Western astrology. Yeah, I don't really. Yeah, I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not. Middle Eastern. So I don't know how someone living in the Middle East would have a like reaction to that.
0: Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, and I guess that gets to one of the main things and main discussions that I can kind of see happening in the future as like post-colonial theory is applied more to astrology, is just dealing with how culturally diverse astrology is, especially what we call Western astrology. You know, encompasses four or five thousand years of of history and dozens or hundreds of different cultures and and a bunch of different languages that it's passed through at different points and different religions and different um, you know ethnic groups that were practicing it at different times or religious groups and that tension because it's got such a diverse history um, of yeah just just applying some wanting to be careful and wanting to be respectful of different cultures while at the same time embracing the diversity of astrology over time and history.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Um, so let's see. Do you have I was going to say if you have any advice then in terms of astrologers or what you want them to take away from your book in terms of applying post-colonial theory to you know one of the things you did was looking of looking at astrology in different eras. Um, but is the primary thing just being careful and cognizant of what your own biases are, or your own cultural perspective is?
1: Um, I think that yeah, it's not about like being careful of anything. Um, like th- the reason why I like made the book is so that there's like a way of talking about um, these issues that are really alive in our lives. So like you know that's just the intention. Like the reason why it just focuses on the seven planets is like there's no technical pieces in the book. Um yeah, there's no way that like I think that anyone should be practicing astrology. Like there's no like kind of like criteria for that. And um yeah, and people like a lot of times practice different types of astrology simultaneously too. And so like yeah, that's totally fine. Um the book is just there as an option for if you want to talk about oppression in your practice. Like hey, like you know, here's some openings. That's it. Um yeah, it's not like a like oh, yeah, here's how you do like post-colonial astrology or anything like that. It's um yeah, here's some information and how you use this information, that's up to you. I mean, as you practice, like, you might have a different relationship to this information um, just as a practitioner. um, And, and, yeah, people can talk about oppression any way that they want to, too. Um, But, yeah, in the book, it just, like, it gives you, like, little windows. That's all I was trying to do. Like, that's why I think I like questions, too, is because they open up little windows. Um, Yeah, that's all the book is trying to do.
0: That makes sense because you're you're like bringing in discussions that haven't been had in an astrological context up to this point and trying to discuss things in the context of astrology, like such as capital or such as power or such as labor in an astrological context which you, you don't usually see in in discussions up to this point.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Okay. And I know at one point in the introduction, you mentioned potential like you you kicked around with your editor like different titles or or different things. Like what were some of the other provisional titles for the book?
1: Oh, they were like really bad because I'm not very good at like naming things anything. And um, yeah, I wanted to name it magic-ism because like there's magic and then there's isms which so I wanted to be about like, you know, here's this institution of magic. Um, But like you know, like rightfully, so my editor was like, "No one's gonna understand what that means, and it's like, how about we name it post astrology? I think that would, like it would just make people understand like maybe the contents of the book a little bit better, so
0: yeah, I mean, i it definitely it did, but then at the same time, I went into it like ex- thinking that it would be much more theory heavy about
1: oh. like
0: outlining what post colonial theory is in like academia and then how this relates to astrology and like this um very abc fashion but instead it, it was interesting that it what it ended up being primarily was a discussion of the the seven planets and individual meanings as well as like um relationships to each other and dynamics and ways of talking about that in a way that i hadn't seen before in astrological books through those um more political and through more sort of like left um terminology Like, is that how how would you, is that how to summarize the book or how would you summarize the book? Yeah, I think
1: so. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm not an academic. um, So I don't know all the ins and outs of post colonial theory. I know the books I picked up and read through, but like I never learned it in, in an institutional setting. So yeah, like, you know, I'm a practicing astrologer. That's why I do. So I would write a book that's useful to people who are like me.
0: Right. That makes sense. Um, you said something recently in a tweet that I thought was really interesting about like how it was something about how do you process having just done a consultation with somebody and then all the interesting things that you're learning and thinking about that, but then because of the nature of like the client relationship, the needing to just process that sort of on your own or, or something to that effect. Am I articulating that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. People gave me some really great advice in that thread. And people were like, you know, it's actually like, yeah, you're human. Um, you can process it with your like one other person anonymously and really vaguely. That's fine. So that was really, yeah, that was really nice. I've been processing with my partner, sometimes with my best friend a little bit. I mean, not like processing, like, oh, let me tell you about this, but like, oh, hey, like, you know, this happened today. No, nothing about identities or who the client is
0: yeah, and i I wanted to mention that just because that's something I do feel like is really important. And I sometimes with my partner will talk uh, about uh, something anonymously and just generally speaking about things that I'm processing from consultations afterwards. And I think that's mm-hmm. actually really important for astrologers. yeah because um you know it's not just the client that learns from a session, but also mm-hmm. the astrologer learns something as well by just seeing how the principles have worked out in somebody's life in a mm-hmm. very um, not dramatic, but a very um, distinct and a very um, interesting way in different cases.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes you get really moved during a consultation,
0: right? Yeah, but then it's just it's just over suddenly and like dramatically after that seventy-five minutes or that ninety minutes, and it's almost anticlimactic sometimes because you're still like can be thinking about it for like hours or sometimes like days afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um you know what you saw and the insight that that gave you mm-hmm. into astrology and into how it works and things like that
1: yeah yeah i found that writing client notes is also really useful cuz then you have something to refer back to if that person comes back to you but also like if i write something down for some reason like my brain is able to forget it a little bit better
0: yeah i think that's really good advice as well cuz also in terms of just learning things and building up um, knowledge also as a practicing astrologer. It's like an important thing because you do also forget the details of consultations not that long after you have them. And so sometimes if there's something that you've written down that was like an interesting principle or like an aphorism for yourself that you learned or observed in that instance, it can help sort of contribute to your your body of knowledge as a practicing astrologer in the long term.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
0: are there any other things like that that have come up for you that have been unique in working with different communities as a practicing astrologer? Um, I mean, I guess it's hard because you know you can't step outside of your own practice and just say like what that is compared to somebody else. But that might be helpful for you if there's other people in your position that are coming into the field and and starting to do consulting astrology that have been interesting or like useful.
1: I mean, I think that the reframe is like so useful just as a therapeutic device. And it's like, it's so built into an astrology session because I mean, you, you can reframe using the chart. Um, so like reframing just kind of, yeah, and like hearing, like reflecting a client's words back to them in different language. Mm. And, um, yeah, even just asking, am I hearing you right? Like, you know, is my perception of you like right on, but like, Because, like, you know, a lot of times when you're, like, processing things on your own, like, you don't get the opportunity for a reframe. So I feel like it's just, it's so useful. Um, Because, like, with, I feel like with a reading, like, you're not really telling someone who they are, what they should do, or anything like that. You're kind of acting as a mirror, almost. And that's what does the healing. Because, like, you know, people heal themselves. And, like, when you're able to reframe in a way that um identifies patterns that the client like hasn't been able to identify like that's really powerful.
0: Right. Yeah, and and in some ways that's almost like the primary thing that astrology can do that's effective and like mm-hmm. useful or, or healing as you said.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um are there any other any things that you learned when you first learned ast- astrology that you felt like were not appropriate or that you've had to change in terms of your technical approach or how you talk to people? Um that maybe you feel like were weird because they weren't developed um, by people that were used to speaking to different communities, like that you've had to change in your own technical approach.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, like for example, with the whole like gay Neptune thing. Uh, like I don't know. When I was first starting out, I read a paper that was like, "Well, if you have like hard Neptune aspect or Neptune aspects of some kind of kind." Um, like then you're more likely to be gay, and I mean the assumptions like well if you don't have these aspects then you aren't gay, um, but then like you know like all my clients are queer, and so like it's like yeah of course like I never look for Neptune anything association with queerness.
0: Yeah, there were a lot of things like that from like the 1970s or like Uranus Venus aspects. I felt like in some of the textbooks were sometimes associated with that. Which now, if we if you look back on them, look very very dated and very like like kind of weird or inappropriate at this point. Yeah,
1: yeah, but I didn't know that at the time when I was learning because I wasn't really involved in the online community. Where I don't know if there was one, um, so I was just kind of like looking for stuff on my own. I was like, oh, like maybe this is important. Um, mm-hmm.
0: What were your primary sources, or do you have any astrologers who were major influences in, on you in terms of your your approach or the approach that you ended up taking?
1: Well, I would go to the strand and then they had an astrology shelf, like not a section, but a shelf. Um, so I would just look at what's there. And then I would go to East Village books and they had a whole wall of astrology books. Um, so like, you know, like I don't know why they had so many. Um, they just had a lot. It was like a large percentage of their bookstore. Um and I would just pick up like kind of whatever I found. Um so I was reading a lot of Liz Green, um Stephen Royal, um things like that.
0: Who are some of your favorite like authors that influence you the most or that are still books that stick with you in terms of um, things that stick with you in terms of your approach today?
1: Mm, that's a good question. I really like this one book called The Rising Sign and like I don't see it like circulated a whole lot. I can't remember the author's name. Do you mind if I just go to my bookshelf and pull it off? Yeah, sure. I'm curious. Yeah, I was kinda of looking to see if there's any books, other books too. But I like this book. Um, uh, Gianna Avery is the title of the person. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I really like this book. Yeah, and um so like this was like a really early read for me. Um, and then I was really into Stephen Arroyo's book about Saturn. Um like I got into your work and Demetra George's work a little bit later, but I'm a big fan um of both of you. And yeah, I mean like you know, so many things. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Cool. Uh, Demetra, yeah. I'll be doing an episode with her just after this one, so that's oh, kind cool. of t- timely then. That's your 300th. Yeah, I think that might be 300. We'll yeah. see. Yeah, um, I was really
1: into this YouTuber too called um, Dolo the Pilotman. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen you um, cite his work and some of your articles as being kind of influential on your thinking.
1: Yeah, he was the first astrologer that I saw using the essential dignities. So, that's kind of who I learned the essential dignities from.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, All right, I'm trying to think of any other major things that we meant to touch on or major questions that we wanted to discuss. Is there anything that comes to mind that I'm forgetting or that we haven't touched on or brought up at all at this point?
1: I don't think so. Yeah, you're so thorough.
0: Yeah, I usually try to be a little bit more prepared in terms of like a sequential like major things I want to touch on, but there was just so much that the book covered and um, you covered such a wide array of different sources and ideas when looking at the meaning of the planets in different ways that that was relevant culturally over history um, that it was hard to like condense it all down into like a singular discussion necessarily.
1: No, thank you. Yeah, I feel like that was really good, like the way that you yeah, structured and led the discussion. I wonder if we can mention um like uh you know that the link in my website goes to Milmondos like really quickly? I don't know yeah. if we mentioned that. We might have. No,
0: we, we didn't, but we should. So the book is coming out next month, um basically about a month from now in you said the publication date should be May 18th, 2021 and um you can find out more people can find out more information about it if they go to your website, which is Sparklycat.com slash postcolonialastrology. And there's a specific, especially if people live in the US website that you'd prefer people to order it from, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The link on my website will take you to a mutual aid project called Mil Mundos. So then 50% of their money, like it goes t- towards mutual aid. So. You know, it's nice if you order from there. If you live outside of the U.S., you unfortunately, in the U.S. and Puerto Rico, you can't order from the windows. Um, they don't ship internationally, but what you can do is you can just call your local bookstore and ask them to stock it. It's super easy for them. If they have a account with Penguin, then they're able to do that. You can also read the introduction of the book on my website. There's a link also on that page that'll take you to the introduction.
0: Okay, awesome. So that's at alicesparkleycat.com. You've also got a blog there. And you're also pretty active like writing on Twitter and doing different Twitter threads pretty frequently, right?
1: Yeah, I go on Twitter a lot. It's kind of an addiction.
0: Right. Yeah, I've been experimenting with not having it on my phone as much lately just to refocus on things, but it's hard sometimes, yeah, because so much of the discussion, especially with younger astrologers, has, has migrated there over the past several years.
1: Yeah, I just got on Twitter this year. I never was on it.
0: Okay. What's your um, handle on Twitter?
1: Oh, my handle on Twitter is AliceSparklyCat, all one word, and that's cat with a K.
0: Got it. Okay, perfect. Um, Cool. Well, uh, yeah, good luck with the book launch next month. Congratulations. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show to, to talk about it. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you putting this together and um, yeah, for supporting the book.
0: Right, of course. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening or watching this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Um, and uh, Enjoy the book and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers' tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopik, Nadia Haphab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwac.net, the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co, also the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org, the AstroGold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.